Okay, so you think you've blown it. You struggle to believe God could ever want you back or ever use you again. Well, just try to imagine this. Imagine being a first century Jew, knowing that for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people have waited for the promised Messiah. And in a moment of time, you come to the realization that the Messiah has come in your lifetime. And you not only rejected him, you had him tortured and you had him executed. In that moment, the cry, now what? The answer Peter gives brings hope to every person in the room. If you have your Bible, turn with us this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 2, as we continue our study through the book of Acts. Last week, Ryan... Talk to us about this amazing moment in history where the Spirit of God was poured out on 120 disciples of Jesus in the upper room. It resulted in miraculous speech that spilled out into the streets and up into the temple courtyard. What the people witnessed, and it would have been thousands and thousands of people because it was Pentecost, caused them to respond, according to the text, in amazement. They were perplexed, and some of the mockers thought, these people are drunk. That gets us to verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So just a couple things real quick. One is, this is a consistent pattern we'll see over and over again in the book of Acts. There is some sort of an event, and then there is a sermon, a speech that explains what has happened in the event. About one-third of the book of Acts are sermons explaining what just took place. Second of all, we have to appreciate how incredibly dangerous this was. It's less than two months since they saw their leader arrested, tortured, and executed before them. They had every reason to believe the same would happen to them. This took extraordinary courage to stand up and do this before this crowd. Third, it's important to remember that we are told in the Gospels that after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days in and out with these disciples explaining to them from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms of how those 
Old Testament scriptures were actually talking about him. So it's likely when Peter shares this, he's sharing with the crowd what Jesus had recently shared with him. He identifies these people aren't drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. But rather, this is the fulfillment of what was prophesied by Joel some 500 plus years before. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is Joel's prophecy. That one day the Spirit of God would be poured out on his people. In an unusual way. And it would be evident through signs and miracles and wonders. And Peter is identifying that's what you're witnessing. We don't have time to go through all the details of what Joel says, nor is that necessary. But to understand what Peter is saying is this is the fulfillment of what Joel prophesied. It goes down to verse 20, until the great day of the Lord, referring to the return of Christ, final uh, uh, celebration for believers, final judgment for those who have rejected Jesus. So we've talked about this. These are the bookends of the period of time in which we live that is an incredibly unique and remarkable period of time. No other generations have lived in a time like this other than those from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. What is referred to in the New Testament as the last days. Basically, it's the idea that the world has waited for thousands of years for God to fulfill his promise to send a savior. But in the first coming of Jesus, God fulfilled that promise. And having fulfilled that promise, he has returned to the right hand of the Father. He is pouring out his spirit to empower his believers with this final task of telling the world, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So that is our mission. That is our assignment to tell the world that message. So as long as any of us, no one single person that doesn't yet know this, we have a job to do. So that's what Peter says, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. 
Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Jesus the Nazarene was a term that the Jews used of Jesus that was meant to be derogatory. These Jerusalem Jews looked down on the Galileans. So this is a term they used. It's also the term that Pilate put on the placard on Jesus' cross. Jesus the Nazarene. But he's reminding them God actually revealed, attested, revealed that this is God in the flesh through signs and miracles and wonders. I love the wording of this when he says, God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. That's emphatic in the Greek language. In other words, what Peter is saying is you know this is true. Jesus didn't do miracles somewhere on a mountaintop or in a cave, and we're just telling you that. He did them publicly in your midst. You saw them you know this is true. That's what he just said. Verse 23 is the reminder that Jesus going to the cross was not a plan gone badly. It was the plan. According to the predetermined plan of God, the foreknowledge of God, God sent his son to be the savior of the world. But that doesn't remove human responsibility. He goes on to say, but you turned your Messiah over to the Roman pagans to be tortured and crucified. There is this tension throughout scripture between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Somehow, some way, mysteriously, they're both true. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead. It was impossible for the grave to hold him. Jesus didn't just come alive. Jesus is life. It was simply not possible for the grave to hold him. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. He conquered death once and for all. That word agony is a Greek word that means literally uh, birth pangs. Basically, the imagery is you can no more keep Jesus in the grave than you can stop a woman in labor from delivering the child. It is time for new birth. Verse 25 he quotes then from Psalm uh, 16. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. 
because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For you have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he neither abandoned, was abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So, the background is this is Psalm 16. And both the rabbis and the religious teachers struggled to come up with some explanation for the meaning of Psalm 16. Because David is talking about not remaining in the grave, not undergoing decay. But the problem is he did stay in the grave. He did undergo decay. Peter goes so far as to say, we know that's truth. True, his tomb is right down the road here. You can go visit it if you want. So what he's explaining is David was actually speaking prophetically, knowing that one of his descendants, the Messiah, would ultimately be the one who would die, be buried, but would rise from the dead and conquer death once and for all. Can you imagine being a Jew in that moment all your life hearing the confusion, trying to make sense of this psalm, and suddenly there's a light bulb moment, an aha moment. So that's what that meant. And they have witnessed the fulfillment before their very eyes. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself, meaning David, says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So verse 32, this Jesus God raised from the dead to which you are witnesses. Again, this is in Jerusalem. It's in the place where Jesus was crucified. It's in the place where Jesus rose from the dead. This is less than two months later. It's about a 10-minute walk to the tomb. Peter is saying, you absolutely know this is true. He was crucified, he was buried, and you know he rose from the dead. He is now ascended to the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father, and as promised, has sent his Spirit upon those who believe which is what you're now witnessing, what you see and hear. He quotes then from Psalm 110, identifying this couldn't be about David, 
The literal Hebrew in that psalm is Yahweh said to Adonai. God said to God, you sit here at my right hand, will send your spirit until it's time for you to return for ultimate victory. Therefore, in light of all of this that Peter has shared with them, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, God has presented him, both Lord, meaning deity, and Christ. He is revealed he was God in the flesh and the long-awaited Messiah. And then he adds, this Jesus whom you crucified. Can you imagine that moment? of coming to the realization this was the long-awaited Messiah. This was God in the flesh. We not only rejected him, we tortured him, and we executed him. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced, we would say stabbed in the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? I don't know what they were expecting. You would think in that moment, all hope is lost. But what they heard would have to be considered the best news ever. Peter said to them, Repent! And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Peter's answer, repent. The word repent is an important word in the book of Acts. It's a very strong word. It literally means a change of heart or a change of mind. Carries with it this idea of like a U-turn of going a different direction. It's very different from, for example, the term sorry. Sorry is kind of an emotional response. I'm sorry. Often what happens is I say, I'm sorry, but over time, I do it again. I'm sorry. Over time, I do it again. It creates what I refer to as the sin, sorry, sin, sorry, sin, sorry cycle. Repentance is not like that. Repentance is a stake in the ground. It is a complete change of heart and mind I've changed my mind. I will not continue down that path. For these people, they had denied and rejected that this was their Messiah. That Jesus had died on the cross for their sins. Repentance was to change their mind. 
and to believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Savior for the forgiveness of sins. All you have to do is change your mind. All you have to do is believe. And God will forgive your sin and pour out his spirit on you. Peter is inviting them to be part of this new community of faith to change the world. The very people who rejected, tortured, and crucified the Savior. He goes on to say, this isn't just for you. It's for your children. It's for your children's children. It's for anyone who believes. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a message filled with hope for anyone. The text can be confusing when it says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Does that mean that what is the means of forgiveness is baptism? It does kind of sound like that. This is a good reminder why we don't just pull verses out of context and make them say whatever we want them to say. You can literally make the Bible say anything if you choose to do it that way. So first of all, we understand that would be contrary to everything we're taught in the New Testament. We just concluded a study of the Gospel of John. What was the message there? These things are written that you may what? Believe. That those who believe in Acts, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou wilt be saved. Throughout the book of Acts, there is a consistent message of repentance, faith, and belief that does not include baptism. So what is he's saying here? First of all, to understand, baptism was not a new concept to the Jews. In the Old Covenant, there was a lot of water rituals that had to do with ceremonial cleansing. They clearly understood it was a ceremonial, symbolic cleansing. During the first century, what these Jews would have understood was primarily baptism, which was a form of identification, was for Gentiles when they were converting to Judaism. It carried with it the idea that they were symbolically cleansed from their defilements as Gentiles in order to convert to Judaism. There isn't one of these Jews that would have understood that to be anything other than symbolic, than ceremonial. So what's unique now in this moment is 
Peter is calling on these Jews to be baptized specifically in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, to be identified with Jesus Christ as their Savior for the forgiveness of sins. That then would be publicly demonstrated through baptism. That little word for, the Greek preposition there, can also be translated and often is because of. A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, interpreted this because of the forgiveness of your sins. You have to understand in this culture, deciding to follow Jesus was not a secret. It isn't something that you just secretly did and didn't tell anybody. You were choosing to come out of a community of rejection of the Messiah in order to identify yourself as a believer, as a believer in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which is what water baptism symbolizes. These people at great personal risk soon enough would be uh, persecuted for their faith, would take a stand and say, I choose to follow Jesus. So what the text is saying, repent, change your mind. Choose to be identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, publicly symbolized by your baptism, and receive the Holy Spirit to empower you to tell the world, whosoever calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them. That means pleading with them. Be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved, be rescued. The ultimate story is not a group of individuals possessing a ticket to heaven and waiting it out. It is the story of a group of people called out from among the world to be invited into a new community of faith, of people who believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, whose assignment is to tell the world God kept his promise This is what he's done. That called out community of faith is what we call the church. Verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Imagine that. 
in one day. This fledgling group of 120 followers of Jesus became 3,120 followers of Jesus. Because what Peter said was so obviously true, that at great personal risk, 3,000 people in one day said, I choose to follow Jesus. Virtually overnight, an amazing called out community of faith. What does that community look like? Talk more about that next week. This morning, we have the wonderful privilege of celebrating together eight people who have placed their trust in Jesus as Savior and publicly declare that this morning in baptism. In this service, we have four Listen to their stories.